welcome back for day two of the conference. I got to tell you, I, I was really pleased with how today one went. I, I learned a lot yesterday. I hope you did as well. Um, and I know we're about to learn a lot more with this compliance-focused panel. And so without further ado, I'll turn it over to Dr. Mann, and uh, thank you very much. Hi, good morning, everyone, um, and everyone tuning in online. Um, I'm just going to break right into this and introduce um, our panelists so we can get into a lively discussion about compliance and oversight. Um, to my direct left is uh, John DeLong, who is Director of Compliance at the NSA. Uh, prior to his appointment as Director in July of 2009, um, John served as the Deputy Director of the NSA um, Commercial Solutions Center. And that addresses strategic needs of the NSA and the national security community by harnessing the power of U.S. commercial technology. Um, previously, he served as the, uh, in a joint duty position as Deputy Director of the National Cybersecurity Division at Homeland Security. And um, notably, he's a certified compliance and ethics professional um, who actively reads in the area of policy and technology and um, the emerging areas of instantiating legal and policy rules into complex IT infrastructures. Um, to his left is Mr. Alex uh, Joel, who is uh, the Civil Liberties Protection Officer for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, the ODNI leads the nation's intelligence activities, and Mr. Joel is the director uh, of their Civil Liberties uh, Division, reporting directly to um, the Director of National Intelligence. His responsibilities include ensuring that the protection of privacy and civil liberties are appropriately incorporated into the policies and procedures of intelligence agencies. Um, to his left um, is Professor Margot Schlanger. <laughs> I've been practicing that all morning. Did I get it right? Yeah, yeah we so could tell. The thing is, yeah, I've everybody smooth. pronounces my name incorrectly, so I figured I'd how, get it. How do you say your name? It's the whole, exactly. How do you say my name? So, <laughs> so uh, Margot. Are we all going to be quiz? Okay. Well, no. You, you will definitely be quiz, let me tell you. So, Margot is a professor at uh, University of Michigan Law School, where she teaches torts, constitutional equality, and classes about prisons, civil rights, and homeland security. She founded and runs the Civil Rights Litigation Clearinghouse, um, and that is uh, clearinghouse.net. Uh, she returned to uh, University uh, to Michigan Law School in January of 2012 from a two-year leave, during which she served as uh, the presidentially appointed officer for civil rights and civil liberties at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, she's a uh, Yale Law grad and has uh, clerked with uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, from 1993 to 95. Um, she's currently working on articles about civil rights compliance strategies in federal agencies, such as the NSA, and about uh, more generally about the NSA and intelligence legalism. Um, to start us off, um, I thought I'd ask a very basic question, uh, both to John and Alex, of what, what exactly is compliance and what is oversight and how are they distinguished? And Great. I'll start with compliance. Does that work? Uh, so thanks for having me here. Um, the shortest phrase for compliance is it's the process of meeting expectations. And we spent a lot of yesterday talking about what the expectations are, the expectations in the law and the policies and the procedures. Um, and now I think we're going to turn in this panel to the process of meeting those expectations. Um, each and every day in a consistent manner. And I, I really thank you, Bobby, 
uh, for organizing a great session, but um, especially in the, in the focus yesterday on what the rules and the policies and procedures are or should be, um, and then today on um, an equal amount of time on uh, kind of what, what is that process for achieving consistency with those expectations in a repeatable manner each and every day, each and every second, and each and every action, a query that an analyst makes, a collection event that occurs, a sharing of information outside of NSA. So, um, you know, I was at a big data privacy conference and, and somebody coined the phrase, big data requires big rules and big compliance. And so um, what I think we're going to talk about today is kind of the big compliance, at least from my point of view. Um, and, and one thing is in a compliance program is really as, an, as enduring as the rules. It's something that takes a lot of structure, takes a lot of management, takes a lot of training. Um, you know, we have 300 plus people working compliance at NSA. Compliance is everyone's responsibility at NSA. They all have to bring their own, um, right, in, in their role, whether they're creating technology or whether they're a front-end collection or whether they're sharing something else. They all have to understand the rules. They have to understand how they apply to their activity. And they need a way to uh, a structure a process to achieve consistency with that each and every day. Um, the compliance professionals would talk about internal controls, right, training, spot checks, um, pre-approvals for certain activities, um, checks after separation of duties, all those different kinds of things that are brought to bear such that each and every day we're achieving consistency with what the rules are. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more. There's a great SEC speech of, from Jim Walsh in 2002 which tries to tease out specifically some of the you know, what falls in the rules bucket, how do people who create the rules think about the rules, and then from a compliance point of view, how does the compliance profession and the compliance professionals think about instantiating those rules, bringing them to life each and every day, um, and then providing a feedback loop, and I think that's a great way to transition over to Alex to kind of pick up some of the oversight. Okay, well, I'd be interested, John, hearing what you think oversight means. Go. Why don't you? Great. Um, so good. Uh, so I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> Let me oversee uh, this answer. Right? right, this is like yeah, quiz John. Um, <laughs> Uh, so there's, there's some, two, one, two things I always say about oversight and compliance, which is a compliance program is far more effective with effective oversight. Um, and the second thing, which is that an over, all the oversight in the world doesn't build a compliance program organically. It really takes both. And so Joel Brenner um, has a, a paper on principles of intelligence oversight. He talks about compliance as building quality in from the first phase of every single operation and, and in oversight as either inspecting after the fact or providing um, a, a degree of independence, whether structurally, for example, from an inspector general, which is, for example, the NSA inspector general at NSA, but structurally, by statute, has an independence, is able to have an objective view of how we're actually achieving consistency with the rules in each and every day. And then uh, independence also structurally by being in a different office or agency, for example, Alex and other folks at the Department of Justice and further out from Congress and the court as being able to be objective to not, not just inspect after the fact, but understand the internal control structure that the compliance folks are working um, through and making sure that seems adequate to provide reasonable assurance of consistency. Right? There's adequate certainty that each and every day the men and women of NSA are going to faithfully follow the protocols, the policies, the procedures, and that there's sufficient checks and balances in addition to the rules, not, not what the laws and policies are, but in addition to the rules to make sure we're faithfully following them. So how'd I do, Alex? That's, a, that's good. Okay. Um, so I don't want to repeat what John said, but just, just from my perspective, um, having been doing this for a number of years and, and being in the Office of Director of National Intelligence, so uh, seeing this from an intelligence community-wide perspective as well, um, I think what John was describing in terms of compliance, what, what is very important to understand, that, that is really something that's happening um, at the agency level. It's much more granular. 
Um, these are a, a whole series of systems and processes uh, that include making sure the rules are clear, making sure that people are trained on the rules, making sure that there are processes in place to monitor and audit that those rules are in fact being followed on a day-to-day -day basis, and then there are processes for reporting incidents that, that happen as a result um, uh, of that monitoring um, that, and training that goes on, because a lot of uh, the incidents can be identified through people self-reporting, people identifying that they made a mistake and, and going ahead and using reporting mechanisms, knowing that they're not going to be subject to reprisal or, or any uh, negative effect for the fact that they've identified and reported something. So I think NSA has done um, a real uh, terrific job in building and implementing that kind of a compliance uh, process and, and approach uh, at NSA. Oversight is really, in my view, closely related to that, but at the same time uh, operates at a different, um, more general level. Uh, so just to, to expand a bit on what John was saying, from my perspective, oversight can easily involve people inside the agency as well. So people inside the agency can view themselves as having an oversight role. And then you can have oversight, of course, at different, uh, different parts of the executive branch. We want to mention the Department of Justice here as well, which plays a very important role. Um, we have the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. We have the Intelligence Oversight Board, which is in the White House as part of the uh, PAB, the, Presidential, uh, the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. Uh, so we have, the, uh, we have a, a series of structures within the executive branch that essentially are, are designed to ensure that the, the rules are working right, that they're appropriately applied, uh, appropriately designed for the activity that we're dealing with, and that, uh, that the compliance measures um, are in place to make sure that those rules are in fact being followed. And, and so that's at the executive branch level, and of course we've had oversight from Congress uh, for, for these activities, and uh, Congress in turn plays its role, I won't describe, I won't, I won't uh, assume, presume to, to describe uh, for Congress, what, what they feel their oversight role is, I can tell you from our perspective, we feel it's very uh, granular uh, oversight from Congress. And of course, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and we can talk more about that, um, uh, plays a key role as well to, to again, verify that these rules are, are in place and are, are, are properly functioning. And it's, in, in my view, it's, it's a different function than, uh, for example, from my office, I don't go into NSA and actually uh, myself uh, put in place the different programs. That's John's job. That really is the agency's responsibility to comply with the rules. It's my job to work with John and others at NSA and, um, and the other oversight entities to make sure that, that the, the mechanisms that NSA has put in place are, are uh, working properly. Margo, um, John had... Uh, he distinguished between setting and meeting expectations. Um, should uh, compliance also be involved in setting the expe expectations? Well, that's an interesting. Uh, that's interesting. So, um, you know, I think that one of the things that compliance offices uh, contribute to the um, to the development of rules and to the implementation of rules is that they tend to, and this is not, I gather that this happens at the NSA, but I think it happens in all of the compliance settings that I know anything about. They, they tend to be very big on, let's set rules that people can know what they mean and how to apply. Let's set rules where, um, where you can expect that compliance can occur. And I think that that's a perspective that um, that compliance offices will sometimes add. That sounds kind of basic, but but lawyers will write things like, "Be reasonable," and think that they've just set a rule. 
right? I mean, I teach torts. Like, we have that. That's a rule, right? And the answer is uh, not a, it's, it's not an applicable. It's not a rule that can be implemented. And so I think that compliance offices will very often, and I gather that this is true at NSA, will, when somebody is thinking about what the rule's going to be, will say, whoa, 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 how are you going to tell me whether I've complied with that rule or not? So they definitely get involved to that extent. Um, but there is this division of labor in the compliance world that compliance offices are not deciding what should happen. They're just deciding whether the thing that should happen is happening and trying to make it happen. And um, uh, that has pros and cons, you know, that um, uh, – you definitely want some people who that's their job. They're going to decide. They're going to figure out how to take somebody else's instructions and implement. Um, uh, I think a point that I feel uh, sometimes gets a little underemphasized is there's only so much kind of air in the room. There's only so much decisional space that people have energy to occupy. The If you're spending all that all that energy on figuring out whether the rules are being complied with, there's a danger that there's going to be a little less energy spent on figuring out if the rules are the right rules. Now, I don't mean in sessions like this one, um, because this, this kind of conference, for one thing, none of us is figuring out whether the rules are being complied with. But I mean, inside agencies, I think that there is a tendency to focus on the rule of law as the paramount value, and the rule of law is an important value, but to lose sight a little bit that um, that uh, there need to be some institutional structures in place to evaluate whether the rules are the right rules, whether the, the game is worth the candle, whether the invasion of privacy or the ingestion of information is gaining enough value that it's worthwhile, whether it's doing, um, uh, whether it's appropriate. And um, I, I heard somebody say at, at this conference, although I don't actually remember who it was, um, that the NSA is an operate, it's an operating agency, not a policy agency. What you worry about, that's actually the same point. What you worry about with that is, okay, so where's the policy being, where's the policy conversation being had? If it's not going to be had in the compliance office, then when somebody challenges the operations of the agency and says, I think you're doing this all wrong, and the answer is, no, but we're a rule of law agency, we're complying with the rules, then the, the, the challenge and the response to the challenge are not actually meeting. They are, they are past each other. And I think the compliance apparatus has a danger of, um, of making that happen more often sometimes. I'm noting this moment. This is the first time I've heard compliance and danger in the same sentence. <laughs> um, but but I, think, I think Margot raises a good point, and I think Alex should um, chime in as well, which is you, if, if you look at just the past decade, you see... Um, civil liberties and privacy officers coming in to ODNI and and um, now at NSA, right? You see a lot of additional structures put in place um, to again, right? Not just look at it from a legal perspective, not just look at it from a compliance perspective. Are you consistent with the law? But add that, and the, and the president mentioned this in his January seventeenth um, speech. Not just the can, but sh but the should, right? The and you, and you can use a lot of words for that. You know, you said I'm a chief compliance and ethics officer in private industry. They often combine compliance and ethics um, in a symbol. We, I'm the director of compliance. I'm very focused on, and when we can talk about some of the 2009 things, 
you know, a real um, seizing moment of making sure that the technology, the people are faithfully following what, what the rules that the court or Congress or um, the Attorney General set out for them. But I don't know, Alex, if you want to chime yeah, in. Yeah, I think, I think Margo, you've put your finger on a, on a very important um, topic in terms of uh, figuring out what, essentially what, what rules are the right rules that we should be complying with. Um, and, and the way I was thinking about this recently was uh, you know, in terms of, of trust. And uh, in my mind, it has sort of three different dimensions as it applies to the areas that we're currently discussing. One, the more general one that I think uh, immediately comes to mind is whether the American people can trust the intelligence community generally. Can we trust our intelligence agencies to, to be doing the right thing? And I, we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, but more specifically to what Margo is saying, there, I think there's two, there's two other areas here. One is can we trust, for example, NSA to follow the rules? And then... Can we trust our uh, existing rules and oversight and compliance framework in general, the way that we have currently set up um, the government institutions, to generate uh, good outcomes, outcomes that we're comfortable with um, in our democracy? And I think those are two separate but related questions. Um, so the one that, that we can talk about and in, in, in what a compliance panel is ordinarily here to talk about would be, can we trust the agency to follow the rules. And John's organization has done a lot to try to um, demonstrate uh, why uh, we feel the NSA can be trusted to follow the rules. Some of the recent studies that have come out have acknowledged, for example, the Privacy Civil Liberties Oversight Board at the conclusion of their report, otherwise uh, quite a critical independent study of the Section 215 program, said that the uh, intelligence officers that they had encountered were clearly uh, intent on following the rules, on complying with the law. Um, a similar statement was recently made by a member of the, uh, the review group, uh, Jeff Stone, in an op-ed piece where he uh, highlighted the fact that the uh, NSA is very much a rules-following organization, and he was very impressed with their dedication to following, uh, following the rules. Um, I know that we can, of course, still discuss that there are mistakes that, are, that, that do happen. They get reported. We certainly saw the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court take um, the intelligence community to task on, on several of those. Um, but I think, at least I, I hope, that people have become more comfortable with the notion that once the rules are laid out, uh, the intelligence community is, tries to act in good faith uh, in a dedicated manner to follow those rules. So... And we can talk about that, of course, some more. Um, but that then leaves open the question, well, is the framework set up to generate the right rules, essentially, in, in, in a time of rapidly changing technology? And where do these policy discussions take place? And how can we learn more about them? Um, so I'll just say, from my perspective, we do have those policy discussions. They are uh, robust um, inside the intelligence community. Uh, they do involve uh, consultations with Congress. They involve... Uh, back and forth, if, it, if it's a matter in front of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, there's a lot of back and forth uh, with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court about what's appropriate, what isn't appropriate. Um, and some, some of the programs that you see that have been discussed in public have layers and layers of safeguards and protections. And we heard a comment yesterday that these are complicated rules um, and there's a lot of different details uh, in them. And I think that's another topic for discussion in terms of how that challenges a compliance organization to follow these different complicated sets of different rules because it's very true that they are complicated and there's a lot of them. Um, but I do think that that reflects a robust discussion 
and uh, uh, exchange in terms of how do we address um, different kinds of considerations depending on the kind of data, the kind of technique that's involved. Uh, so those are discussions that, that, that do occur. I certainly view it as my job to bring up those issues from a policy perspective. I'm a lawyer, but uh, uh, my, view, my role is a policy perspective. Uh, NSA's Civil Liberties and Privacy Officer uh, is also there to bring up those issues. And in my experience, people are very sensitive to those issues inside the government, now regardless of whether they're in the Civil Liberties and Privacy Office. I think the question is, um, is that sufficient? Are we satisfied with that? Do we know more, enough about that? By we, I mean the American people. And can we, can we provide more transparency on that? Um, and I know that for my own sake, I think it would be helpful to find ways to provide more transparency. And there's a, a, a couple of different reasons why that would be helpful. One is for people to better understand what we're doing. And the other is for us to also make sure that we're getting uh, the range of views considered as part of that decision-making process. So a lot of ideas thrown out there, and I hope someone's taking notes and for, for the follow-up Q&A period. Um, but I, I'll start with a point that Margot made. Um, and, and in terms of the role of the, the compliance officer, the com compliance department uh, generally, um, one interesting uh, issue is uh, you have a lot of input or potential input as to whether uh, a particular rule is, uh, whether it's possible to comply with it in the mm -hmm. first place. Um, and yesterday in, in the afternoon, we were talking about, I think in the content session, um, we were talking about um, 702 data and whether you can test uh, or, or search uh, U.S. person uh, selectors against 702 data. At some point, uh, someone threw out uh, what appeared to be a rule uh, of, you know, it has to be, you can, you can search against 702 data, but only if you expect a foreign intelligence result or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. How do you test that as a compliance officer? Sure. So the first thing we look at is what's in, for example, the court order, right? And if, if you, I think a large part of this has been declassified. Then what we do, and that's kind of where you look at the rule, and, and it actually says there must be procedures developed within the, you know, within the um, agencies using 702 data such that, and then reviewed by justice and ODNI. So then we, we, the court requires those procedures to be there. So next thing we do is we say, what's a reasonable set of procedures? So it, it could be, for example, in this case, before an analyst wants to conduct a U.S. person query using a U.S. person identifier, um, they must go get that identifier approved with the NSA Office of General Counsel and maybe somebody from my compliance office or from a, a signals intelligence compliance office. So that would be a pre-approval, right, before a query can even be conducted. That there, there's an additional person, a separation of duties, if you will, from the analyst such that a, a lawyer and a compliance officer can both assess. The lawyer assessing for, right, does this meet the standard for, you know, d designed to re um, re return foreign intelligence, a compliance officer making sure that there's a repeatable process such that when they do query, right, and this would be another thing, is queries are recorded and then reviewed after the fact such that, right, we're making sure that they're tied up, right, and, and there's not a query done on a U.S. person that's not been pre-approved, for example. So you're not going to find any of that in the court order. Right? So you can look at the rules, you can look at the laws and the policies that are available either to the public or even, you know, from Alex looking in saying, you know, or, or the lawyers looking in saying what's actually written, what's actually required. The, the real, where the rubber meets the road for a compliance program is having additional internal controls, a separation of duty, a pre-approval, a post-check. The analysts are trained, right, such that they know if they want to conduct a U.S. person query into the 702 PRISM data, they need to go seek prior approval. That, so that, that's kind of how a compliance officer thinks about it. 
is making sure the right offices are involved in that decision. And, you know, in, in, and in cases where there is a heightened right, sense of attention or a heightened sense of concern for privacy or civil liberties or, more, or an issue that's obviously been a, a big topic of discussion, we're going to add in pre-approvals. Right? Some people will say, well, why don't you have seven pre-approvals? Right? Seven pre-approvals is not helpful. Right? One or two is usually what we aim for, and then a post-check, and then some spot checks afterwards. If you actually read the 702 minimization procedures, you'll see they require spot checks of queries. And actually, you know, that's, a, that's a legal and policy requirement. So we actually have controls to make sure those spot checks occur. Because if we were not to do those spot checks, we would have to be reporting a compliance incident. I see. Um, so again, it's, it matters to us very much where the different rules are, right? And then, and then we always put internal controls around whatever is a legal or policy requirement. Mm -hmm. And so just to expand on that a little yeah. bit, the, um, so, so the analyst is going to have to record the reason why they want to use this particular identifier. Yeah. And then uh, those documents are then subject not only to the pre-approval mm -hmm. that John mentioned, but then also subject to review by ODNI and the Department of Justice. Great. And then we Thank report you. any issues that come up uh, to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, and um, and in our last, in the semi-annual assessment that we did, uh, we, we included information about that whole process, and that's, that's up on IC on the record. Yep. Um, it's important what John, John was describing to have these internal checks because those are the experts. So the supervisor, for example, of the person who's trying to run the query is the one who understands what are the intelligence uh, objectives that we have in this, in this particular office. What are we pursuing? And so he can then uh, evaluate what it is that the analyst is putting forward as the reason why this is something that, that they believe will return foreign intelligence information. And, and we have found that that's, that initial supervisory check is very important because that, that supervisor can then um, can, can weed out stuff that he thinks is not important. Um, he says, we're not going to run that one. Or ask the um, questions, right? Or I mean, ask the questions, yeah. We want people to ask questions. That's, that's a very healthy thing in a, in a, in a compliance structure. So how do you implement that? How do you, how, let's say I'm an analyst, I'm sitting at my station, and I want to enter uh, Margot's name against a whole bunch of 702 data. Well, you couldn't do Margot's name, I'm thinking. No, I'm just thinking. Right. I, I can't imagine the foreign intelligence. No, that's what he's asking. So how do you oh. make sure that he can't oh, do it? Oh, oh, I, I mean, I can't, right. but I how do you, how do you prevent me from doing that? Got so. it. And so that's where, again, I hardly you, even travel. Right, that's where in the, um, in the language of a, you know, the compliance professionals, we talk about preventative internal controls, and we talk about detective internal controls. So the pre-approval, the training, all those things, right? But a query is going to be put in. We're going to use technology to record that query, maintain a permanent record, mm -hmm. such that, you know, we talked about oversight and, our inspector general, such that even a year later they can come in and look at all those records. Do a right. We're also going to take that query, for example, what you put in, mm -hmm. and send it to some other person to review it, and right, they would then raise their hand and say, I, "I have no idea why you just entered that." They come talk to you. You'd have to do some. You'd have some explaining to do. Is maybe the best way. Um, so again, it's there's things you focus a lot on prevention, mm -hmm. making sure that you're channeling activity into lawful and and um, rule following, and then you always have detective controls, and that comes at a very granular nature of, right, of a very close in after the fact. It comes in in spot checks, which are required, mm -hmm. such that uh, even a, a in those spot checks are done by the compliance offices. Right? And then even after the fact, um, right, the um, inspector generals and others will come in. And so records are maintained to make sure the inspector generals and other oversight professionals. Is it equally audible, auditable for 12333 work as it is for all of these others? Yeah, so there's a general, so again, for um, 
for a heightened area like 702 where U.S. queries, person queries are provided, we have a heightened level of internal right. preventative controls and detective controls. We have similar things on the 12333, but it's all customized to kind of what's the, um, right, what's the heightened sense of privacy, civil liberties concerned, as expressed by lawyers, civil liberties, privacy officers. Right. Essentially, we have the same. So we'll always record queries. We'll present them to somebody else to review. We'll have after-the-fact spot checks in 12333, those kinds of things. Uh -huh. um, but it's all, it's again, a, there's not a one-size-fits-all um, fits all compliance structure or internal control structure. It's always tailored um, to the risks. And that's why compliance officers do a lot of risk management. We always look at what are foreseeable risks. Right, A software upgrade is a foreseeable risk. The fact that people change positions is a foreseeable risk. Right, And so we always make sure we, we take into account those, those, um, those risks and then address them through proper controls. Alex, I don't know if you were Margaret. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to interrupt you, Margaret, but just, I just want to piggyback on that, um, on that answer, which is um, my understanding, uh, uh, having interacted with NSA person all over the years um, and talked to, you know, obviously in depth with you about the compliance structure, and you can correct me if I'm, if I'm off base here, but um, in terms of the other databases at, at NSA, it's really baked into their systems that all those queries have to be Foreign intelligence queries, mm -hmm. and so there there are checks that are built in. It doesn't matter if it's a U.S. person query or not. Obviously, there's a heightened structure at um, for 702, and there are um, um, additional restrictions for U.S. person queries um, all over the place. But the the um, any query of a signals intelligence database has to have a foreign intelligence uh, purpose. And so there are people who will look at those. I mean, it's part of the normal process of how they do the queries and then how they audit those queries after the fact. And that's, um, you know, there's, some, there's been some mention of, of the Lovent um, situation at NSA, and those involved primarily uh, situations that did not uh, relate to non-U.S. persons. And so those were uh, queries that were done in signals intelligence databases um, that related to non-U.S. persons but were not foreign intelligence queries, and those people were identified and disciplined. Right. And just to, before Margo, I know, yeah. is, um, you know, the, the 215 database and, and query restrictions are just separate, so I wanted to make sure we're not. Those queries have to go, or selection terms have to go to the court before they're even allowed, so there's a whole separate mechanism. But 702, 12.3, we talked about a you know, number of different authorities. From, a, from an analyst point of view, from a technologist point of view, they love it when the internal control structure is as uniform across the authorities as possible because it allows them to use a common set of technology safeguards, a common set of process safeguards. So even if the particulars of what's allowed as a query at the legal and policy level may change depending on right, what authority you're working in, we, we've spent the past four and a half, five years really striving to unify uh, at a functional level um, the internal control structure because it makes it that much easier to be more efficient, more effective in leveraging common technology, leveraging common processes. Right? It's just, you know, it's, people like to understand the, uh, a uniform process and set of controls they, they follow, even if the upper level law and policy may be slightly different. Um, right? We don't want to add additional complexity at the internal control layer to the degree we can avoid it. So, Margo, sorry. Yeah. No, I was, I was just going to say that um, since I seem to be the one who talks about dangers in compliance, um, <laughs> that another, uh, another um, technique that I know that you use some is to substitute for human memory and human judgment um, a set of technological checks on things. So um, uh, if there's a pre-approval requirement to build in that before the thing can be entered, then some 
supervisor has to say okay on the computer, not just to the person live, and so on. At least that's what I gather from your declassified documents. Um, and so one of the things that that, one of the risks that that poses, some of those kinds of computerized um, uh, hard software rather than human um, uh, judgments, is that if something goes wrong, you end up affecting a lot of things rather than just one. And I wonder if um, uh, how you kind of balance that. Great. Um, there's a famous saying, I forget who said it, which is when... Um, blaming an error on a computer behind every blame, there's actually two errors, and the first of it is blaming it on the computer. Um, so, uh, right, you know, the idea that, that ultimately humans are in control right. of technology. If technology ever gets out of our control, we'll organize it into a committee, and that will, right, that will solve it. Um, but, but we spend a, that's not my quote, that's somebody else's. Um, uh, but we, we do spend a ton of time thinking about a proper implementation of human thought and that into, um, into technology, and, and we were just talking about this before. Um, you know, so we do have tables that describe in this particular fact pattern, here's what's legally permitted or not permitted by either law or policy. Um, and, and going into those discussions are areas where the fact patterns can be clear enough, right, such that a legal or policy result can be essentially pre-computed, not, not in the sense of then not checking it after the fact through a spot check or not having a, another audit look at it. But then there are some areas where you know, the answer is, please go talk to a lawyer. Because if you come across this fact pattern, we need to have, we either recognize we can't resolve all um, ambiguity out. So a lot, of the, um, a lot of the discussion about leveraging technology in decision support, um, it comes down to what can be um, automated, what can be pre-computed, and what can't. Somebody described it to me as like TurboTax or the tax preparation software, right? None, nothing in there changes what the tax code is, but it provides you machine support to actually making those decisions, right? And they, there's clear things where you go through those and they say, all right, we've, we're confident enough that right, we can apply it here. And there's others that say, please consult, right, please consult your advisor. Right, but if you have a, a, a typo in, the, in the, the machine support, that could affect many, many more things than just a fat finger problem. And, and I wonder if you've seen that or if actually your checks on your own computer stuff are good enough that you've not had any compliance issues that are related to efforts to solve the compliance issues by building the right. new So the software. question is, do we need a compliance program for our compliance program? Right? It's essentially, and, the, and the answer is know. yes. Right? Oh, you, do you, you need always, to proofread your software? But, yes, but you do it, need to proofread it's a, a less fancy you know, no, question, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the great, and this is why we do a lot of risk management. We always, around any rule, we try to think of having four controls. Uh, a human-based control that guides activity to proper following of that rule, human, a technology one, a human one that detects right when something went wrong, and a technology one that maybe can assist in detecting when something went wrong. So all those things provide overlapping safeguards, belts, suspenders, I don't know what else you have, right? You know. Velcro buttons, all those kinds of things, such that if any one of those breaks down, and, and you know, Margo, you raise a very reality, a real thing, which is, right, what a, a, a computer going wrong for two microseconds can sometimes generate a whole lot of, right. of, um, of wrongness. But we also have additional mechanisms to detect um, and then correct those things. The the alternative is to allow every single different system and every single different person have their own interpretation, right, or and then tying all those things together. Um, is, you know, is, is another risk you have to think about. So or, central so, thing, yeah. or one alternative could be to, um, to to use technology as a supplement instead of a substitute. Right. We, 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 right. What I'm trying to say is we never use it as a substitute. We use it as a supplement. But, but it's a very important supplement. Right. So I want to I sort of 
maybe align myself a little bit differently from what John just said, because I do want to blame the computers. Um, <laughs> and I don't think I'm wrong. Um, so, uh, but it's maybe a little, Margo, your, your point brings up in my mind sort of a broader question of, of how does technology interrelate with compliance, right? So you, you, I think your question was more along the lines of using technology as a way of mm -hmm. enhancing compliance, but technology creates, I think, all kinds of challenges and you can talk about this, yeah, John, as well, but for compliance. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, about the need for people to be more technologically savvy. Um, so when you think about lawyers in general, I don't think lawyers, uh, and I've, we had these conversations with a couple of the folks here, lawyers in general are not, don't think like engineers. Um, for us, everything is gray, and I think for engineers, my son is studying to be an engineer, and I know that for him, things have to be black and white. And they want to be able to express things in formulas. And for the law, it's, it's, it's a lot more, well, it depends on this, it depends on that. So we're a lot more, um, it depends on the facts. You know, tell me what the facts are. Well, the facts with technology change very, very rapidly. And what somebody may have described um, at one point may now be different later on. Um, and so, and this has ripple effects in different ways. So you may, you may have taken, a lawyer may have, A, a lawyer may have misunderstood a technical description. An engineer may not have understood the legal implications of what he was describing and therefore may have described what he thought was relevant, but not what the lawyer ended up feeling was important to understand, as it turned out in retrospect. Um, the court may have a different understanding based on what was relayed to, to the court by the lawyers. Um, notwithstanding whatever they may have intended at the time to describe, technology has now moved in an, in an unexpected and unanticipated way. And so I think for, for compliance and you know, coming up with rules and then implementing those rules, it's, it's a constant challenge to deal with all of these changes, in, in not, only, not only in technology generally, but then also a complex a set of systems inside any organization that is trying to implement all this stuff. And then one change, as John was describing, you can change this good purpose um, you're trying to fix a problem or address a particular issue, and, and unexpectedly, it has an impact over here. Mm -hmm. And now you have a compliance problem. I'm out of compliance, not because I intended to be out of compliance, not because I was um, uh, being reckless, uh, but simply I didn't anticipate properly a complicated series of events that had a result that puts me out of compliance. Yeah. So, And I think, you know, Bruce mentioned it at lunch yesterday, you know, that common phrase, law lags technology. I'd, I'd like to test that a little bit, which is from a, the purpose of compliance is to lash up the law with technology. So, so what stitches that together? And what stitches that together is interpretation. Uh, you know, Jennifer, you said the rules have a lot of pressure. Interpretation puts a lot of pressure on the lawyers, right, the policy personnel, the technology personnel, to make sure that what the rules say may be on paper and what the technology is right down is, is lashed together. And that's why you know, if you if you peer inside NSA and you look at the compliance processes and structures we put in place, it's ultimately a very human process. It's making sure that at the to the down to the lowest level, we have the engineers talking with the lawyers, right, constantly, making sure that if if an engineer has made a interpretation of how a certain thing is that they're communicating that to the lawyers, the lawyers are asking the right questions to make sure that's stitched up. Right? But that that interpretive space is one thing we always have to make sure that. Whatever interpretations are being done, they're being done in the right bucket. You don't want technologists making interpretations that have a legal nature to them. You don't want lawyers making interpretations that have a technology nature to them. But it doesn't really matter probably to a lawyer whether an engineer is using, you know, Python 5.2 or 5.3, right, to pick a software package, right? It doesn't, and, and vice versa.
but I, I, I do think this idea that law lags technology is, is maybe right at the macro level, at the micro level, it's exactly what a compliance office is making sure is stitched up. But that stitching comes through interpretation. So, sorry, Chris, I saw a hand there. I'm just going to offer that to yeah. my sense of what stitches those up is human accountability. Yeah. I mean, Judge Walton, Judge Bates never asked, uh, never compelled a computer to testify before the court. <laughs> right. And that is a salutary fixing effect when you're the human being possessed. Yep. That's actually a great point, uh, Chris. I just want to follow up on that. Um, so, if if interpretation is what stitches everything together and human accountability is an important component of that, and at the end of the day, the, the big question is, can we can we trust intelligence, right? And so, Alex, this really kind of goes to you, right? It, what transparency uh, initiatives are being taken now um, so that we can actually see as members of the public that NSA is actually complying with the law um, and that they're actually interpreting the law in the right way, given all these, you know, interesting, all these term, all these terms, right? A as a lawyer and an engineer, I know that both <laughs> fields have very wacky terms and abbreviations, <laughs> and they'll drive you crazy. But so, how do you, how are you dealing with that? So uh, um, we're working hard at it, but obviously, there's a lot more work that that lies ahead of us. I think. Um, uh, I think you can think of it as retrospective, and then. Prospective, prospective. So, it, or, uh, so if you, uh, what we have been focused on in the last few months, um, as people know who have been following uh, the, the disclosures, uh, the authorized disclosures, the uh, the classifications that we've been doing, is uh, we've been going back and, and, and partly in response to FOIA litigation and to other requests that we've been receiving, we've been looking at different tranches of documents and then trying to process those for release um, on uh, as quickly as possible given the resources that we have uh, available to do it. And um, I think that's important. It, it's helpful for a, an understanding of what the current situation is. Um, and uh, there's been a lot that's per currently been posted. For example, if you go on IC on the record, uh, which is a, a Tumblr blog uh, for the intelligence community uh, on this topic, you'll see a lot of documents there uh, with redactions, um, and so I've already heard complaints from several people here about how difficult it can be to read those documents when you have the blacked out text. So that brings me to the prospective idea here, which is um, how do we better um, inform the public of what we're doing and how we're doing it uh, so that they can uh, more readily understand things. It's not so difficult to read. You don't have to read these blocks of redacted text. Um, and, and not only that, it's not written in such a dense, maybe legalistic and technical manner. It's written more for the layperson, because right now what people are seeing with all these uh, disclosed documents, these published documents, it's as if you're walking into the middle of an ongoing technical and legal conversation that experts have been having um, for, in some cases, decades. And so for us who have been in this field, we can, you know, with some focus and concentration, we can, you know, figure out what's going on based on these documents. Um, for, for the general public and even for very educated and informed members of the public, it can be very difficult to understand what, what these documents mean. Um, and, I, and so I think what we need to be doing going forward is really thinking about how do we prepare our documentation so that the public can more readily understand it. We should be writing things with an expectation that we will be posting them and that they will be uh, subject to review by people and that we will uh, be then answering questions about them and engaging in, in this transparency on a going forward basis. So we're still, 
working through the retrospective part, but we have to uh, also start thinking about and focusing on the prospective part of that as well. Um, one, one of the things that's come out of all of the disclosures, it seems to me, and, and out of the um, sort of compliance and court-supervised part of compliance in particular, is a kind of general flattening of the, um, of the conversation about compliance incidents, where one incident kind of looms as large as another incident um, without without a lot of judgment being applied to well, which ones, let me say this in a concrete way instead of general, there was one set of incidents in which there was a court order that had a certain set of rules and in the end um, uh, one of those rules was arguably not followed. And the NSA went to the court and fessed up to the fact that that rule had not been followed. And the court said, shame on you, and then in the next order changed the rule to match what the practice had been at the NSA. Now, is that set of noncompliance, um, is that noncompliance the same or is it less bad than when the rule that didn't get followed was problematic enough that if the NSA asked the court to change the rule, the court would have said, no way, not on your life, that rule stays. There's a, I'm not saying that any, I want to say, uh, 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 to expect absolutely perfect compliance is unreasonable in a complex set of institutions. It's just, it's just, it's impossible. None of us achieve it in any aspect of our own lives and it's impossible. So, so there's that. But when you have noncompliance, the court should, it seems to me, be down on all of it, right? That's, that's legit. But there's a certain kind of tonal quality to these documents that flattens it. And when the documents are then released to the public, it makes it very difficult for the public to assess, well, how bad was that one and how bad was that one and how ought we even to think about that when, you, as I say, you have one set of, of rules that were not followed where the rule was not really material to the court's approval of the underlying program and one set where the rules were not followed where the rules absolutely were material to the court's approval of the program. And there's somehow, um, and I don't mean that anybody is, these documents were not written for that purpose, but it is a, a, a public discourse difficulty with the way that we are learning about these noncompliance incidents, it seems to me. Well, I got a I was about to jump in, but I, I think there's more than enough, right? <laughs> Maybe let's start with Susan. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that that issue is actually the responsibility of journalists to do that sort of sorting through um, and saying, and I, I'm not, I haven't been seeing a lot of it, but saying this is important, this is not. So it was useful, Siobhan and, and uh, mentioned the story about the French... Uh, wiretapping the slide and how they said, no, this is not actually a story. But then the Post reported the, uh, the mistake with the eavesdropping on the two, uh, 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 the, uh, the metadata collection, or no, it was the content collection on using 202 instead of 20 for the area code, right. the country code versus the area code. That was an honest error, and it seemed to me belonged as a squib and not as a major story. So sometimes you see the press doing it right, and sometimes you saw it doing it wrong. But I think the kind of thing you're mentioning is really a press issue. I, I didn't mean it was the NSA's fault. I meant right. it was a problem with no, no. the transparency. You can blame it's, right. a, it's a problem that, that the, the, the transparency, which seems like it's all to the good, these are particular kinds of bureaucratic documents with a particular sure. kind of tone and role, and they are being 
um, used in service of a conversation that actually requires some judgment, and um, that creates some need for interpretation. Do, do we have a member of the press that wishes to ask a follow-up Shane. question? Is, is I mean, I'd be interested in knowing what you, how you would characterize the story that was about that very issue. I mean, I think that was a very contentious story that the Post wrote, and it seemed to me that it was describing the, it as the something... The 201 and 202 one? Yeah, I mean, it seemed like it was describing it as something... Part There were there were instances where that, that story seemed to indicate there were willful violations, and I'd be curious to know if you have a response to that, you know, John in particular. Sure, yeah. Um, so just a, a, a couple ground-setting things. So if you look at the FISA court rules of procedure, you look at the DOD intelligence oversight, there's no really no discretion inside NSA to decide what is material, what's non-material, what's you know what breaks the what's a story, what's not a story. So we're not we're not journalists. We're not. Right? So our our job is to make sure, you know, what what is an incident of noncompliance gets to the ODNI justice, the court, right through justice. So, so I just want to make sure that, and and I think that's a good structural design, to make sure that that decision is not being made by the folks that right are then being overseen, regulated, et cetera. So um, so it, I think the story you're talking about is the, is that the two hundred two two hundred area code. I, you know, again, you can you characterize it as a mistake. You know, what we what we would look for usually is how long did that persist? Those kinds of things. The other thing I think it, and this is what is missed sometimes in, um, in understanding the overall set of, you can call it, you know, big data privacy, whatever you want, is that it's really a set of information rules that govern a series of steps, and the rules themselves, the minimization procedures, the policies, the laws, are designed to have a series of steps such that a mistake at one step, maybe a collection step, is detected and then filtered out before it propagates down the assembly line. But, but you, could right. have, you could have had a system in place that said, if we're going to be accepting phone numbers, before we accept a U.S. phone number, we're going to just be sure that somebody really meant it. Right? Yeah, I mean, and, I, like, you, know, like I, you could build a computer and, and that we have, would do we have that. have those places. We have those in, in a variety of, of systems. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember exactly how many years ago this was. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. But, again, I, I just want to make sure... You know, you, you, you can and will have an error at, at some stage of the process, but the overall system is designed such that those are detected, filtered out, um, or maybe, you know, if some, something errantly comes in, it just sort of sits there and never is looked at and ages off and it, it goes the away. The collection was a, a very tiny percentage of the overall collection. Right, those kind of things. So, again, that, that's how I'd think about it, but, again, I think part of the structural, bigger structural consideration is who do you want thinking about what's big, what's small. So, and, and, again, even to the, to the court thing, Right. At that time that some of these discussions were being had, a lot was, you know, is, is what we're describing an exhaustive list of what's happening or is it a representative list? Is the technology and understanding things that are important to do, like, for example, filter out high-volume numbers, for example, that I think was one of the examples, right, is a reasonable thing to do but not described appropriately such that, right, the court didn't feel like they were getting the full picture of what we were doing, even if at the end of the day you said, they might say this is an eminently reasonable thing to do, but that's part of the but, structure is to make sure we're very specific about what we're doing. I, I just want to quickly, before, I don't want to lose Margot's point. I mean, I think, I think your, your general point is an extremely important one. I do think the, the on the specifics, though, I think that the court has made very clear which ones it considers consider serious. I mean, if you look back to the 2011 uh, documents from the court that are posted on, on IC on the record, 
um, the court used very strong language in, in uh, taking the government to task on those particular set of incidents. Um, and I think the, in, in defense of uh, our friends in the media, they, they of course, also uh, focused on those particular uh, documents as well and, 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 uh, and, and, and reported on them as being significant incidents, which, which, we, which they were and which we treated them as, mm -hmm. as significant incidents. The other thing that we do is we have a semi-annual assessment, Margo, as you know, that, we put, um, that, that we've been putting out. Uh, ODI and Department of Justice does that jointly, and the purpose of that assessment is really to do exactly what you're trying to uh, point out, which is, that you're pointing out, um, trying to look at, at the overall body of compliance incidents, put them in context, figure out which ones uh, to highlight, and you know, are there patterns, are there, are there trends, um, what should we be focused on going forward, and certainly to call to attention to anything that, that's particularly significant during that period. Um, whether we're doing it, since we didn't write it for public consumption, whether we, we're doing it in a way that's clear uh, to the general public, I, I certainly take that criticism um, as fair. Jen, and then Chris. Actually, actually, what Chris has got the microphone. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I just, uh, Margo, you brought up a really good point in that regard, and I would say that in my experience dealing with the court across seven and a half years, um, it became um, clear at some point in that that we were talking past each other, nobly talking past each other. The court's expectations um, were um, at least three things with respect to NSA, probably not alone. Um, first, that we were perfect into implementing those things that we had agreed upon, um, and when we were not perfect, um, NSA felt the same as the court, that this was something that for which we were accountable. Um, the second expectation of the court would be that there would be some stability, the point that John made, um, that when the court had had a, had a technology explained to them, some operational practice we were chasing, say what you know some particular adversary was doing, the court would say, great, that's going to hold fixed and firm for the duration of this order. Of course, that's an impossible goal. Um, and we had not made it as plain to the court the true nature of the royal of technology, the royal of operational practice. Um, that's not to say that we then would seek an excuse when those things changed. Um, but the court's expectation of stability and NSA's knowledge of what stability really could be guaranteed um, was very different, and, and we had fixed that. Uh, the possibility of putting, say, a technologist on the court um, is a hugely good idea so that the court would be better informed about the range, the size of the box, as Bruce talked about yesterday. General Hayden said, just tell me the size of the box that I can live in. Uh, the third thing that the court expected and that NSA um, knew was impossible, and we weren't disingenuous about this, but the court expects an exhaustive enumeration of those things that will then be um, derivative in the implementation. So if we say we would like to go after you know, a list of attributes associated with some foreign terrorist um, box, email box, um, you know, the court would say, well, what do you mean by that? And we might then say, well, the date that it was created, the kind of operating system, we list all of those things to the best of our ability, and then to our shock and dismay next week, the company that implemented that would come up with a new attribute, and we would think that we've been illustrative. This is certainly within the spirit of that. We would then go after the new attribute because it was, you know, it was a feature. Um, and then when some kind of analyst looked at that and said, but that's not explicit, and then the self-reporting would begin, we'd take it back to the court, um, they would be um, excoriating in their criticism of us and say, if you'd asked me for that, I would have permitted you to do that. Um, and that's then on the occasion when, you know, they kind of excoriate us for the event. They then later say, now that you've asked me, I'll approve it. But you can't have the fruit of the poison tree. You're going to have to purge all the stuff you had. Mm -hmm. right? and, and so over time, the court becomes vexed 
um, because they feel it's not just NSA's reputation that's at stake, it's of course their reputation. And a guy from NSD made it clear to me many years ago that, that what you need to understand in the dialogue you're having with the court is that they extend an extraordinary authority to you. They feel like they're at the kind of pointy end of the spear with respect to the United States government um, essentially allowing NSA to do this. The Congress is essentially given broad authority, the executive branch intends to take care of that, but the court's on the hook. And if you mess that up, you've essentially besmirched the court as much as your own reputation. And so that relationship, you know, was as much at issue as the technology and the rules inside NSA. Mm -hmm. Jennifer. Thank you. So it's, you know, these rules that we're talking about here are, um, in, are mostly internally created rules, maybe in conjunction with the FISA court, maybe not, on which our relationship as individuals with our government and the power that the government has over us rests. So I'm a lawyer and I love rules, but I have to ask whether and how these rules can actually play that role. And that makes me think about what would our founding fathers say and what were the tools that our country has developed over time to help rules serve that role that they're supposed to serve. And so um, the rules could very well be great rules, but if they're secret and if they're implemented um, internally inside the agency, then maybe they're not serving that role. And that's one of the reasons, as Alex said, that transparency is so important. But my question is, what else can we do there to take the things we've learned from our legal structure, um, separation of powers, uh, accountability, publicity, those sorts of things, and then take this compliance regime that, um, that people have developed to comply with um, an uh, honorable effort to instantiate civil liberties and still, uh, and, to, and to manage this unbelievably great power responsibly, can we move some of these rules up so that they're in the statute, they're publicly debated, people know? Can we make, how much of these court opinions can we make public? Are there other things we can do in terms of accountability and putting teeth into the material failures or those sorts of things? Where do you see in, in what it is that you're doing internally where we could make this look more like the rest of our system of rules that we depend upon for getting important work done in other fields, I'll other take, than intelligence. Take two points, then I think go down the line. Um, just to clarify, so the rules NSA operates under are not generated internally to NSA. Right? They're discussed in that, but we don't collect a bit of data unless we can point to rules approved by the Attorney General and or the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that govern that. Right? Those are typically the minimization procedures. You've seen some of those. So I just, just want to clarify that. I, I take your point that they're still internal to either a classified or an executive branch kind of discussion. And, and secondly, to, to more on the accountability side, um, if you've read all 304 pages of the President's Re Review Group report, which I think we all should, I find it fascinating, um, I really do, uh, on page 199 you'll notice a really neat thing about um, what I would call the regulatory compliance balance sheet, right, is, is a way to provide, the, the same way you'd look at a financial balance sheet of a company, right, which again comes out once a year, Right, there's a bunch of maybe business-sensitive transactions behind it, right? It, but it comes out once a year, and it kind of says, here's the assets of the company, here's the liabilities of the company, here are some risk material things we're facing. It's a summary that gives, and then it's audited both internally and externally. It's a way of kind of describing the state of a 
organization. I'm not talking about money here, right? I'm just using that as an analogy. But it's a way to talk about what I would call the regulatory compliance balance sheet, such that that might be at a, at a you know, unclassified or partially unclassified level, might give the public and, you know, and I think folks that, you know, are, are in um, all three branches of government as well, a little bit more of a look into not just what the rules are, but what's the accountability to those rules, right? And, and that is borrowing principles that have been tried and true in at least our financial system of a balance sheet, internal audits, and external audits, such that when you look at a financial balance sheet of a company, there's a structure and a process in place that make you, you know, not, not that those things never go wrong, but the idea is there's some insight. Um, I'll, I'll pass down the line to kind of broader declassification and broader, yeah. right, what the rules can be. Um, so I, I'm... I'm entirely in favor of the um, increased uh, public exposure of all of the the different rules and there has been quite a bit so so that it, at this point we've got of course um, knowledge of how these various programs are being interpreted at the FISA court we have not only the 12 triple three plus its minimization rules we have 5240.1-r and its classified annex we have usage 18 and its classified annex all of these are sets of documents that tell us what the rules are I am counseling uh, and and I think that NSA and the IC in generally in general would be better off if more of that stuff had been released without this sort of um, forcing of the hand that happened because of Snowden. I think that when NCTC, just to go back to my own personal obsession, but when NCTC released its 12333 AG guidelines the day they were signed, that um, which provoked one article in the New York Times and no broader discussion as, you know, generally, I think that's actually a sign, A, that one can release these things, and B, that unfortunately when it happens, people actually don't pay as much attention to those rules, and the level of transparency does not correspond necessarily to the dialogue and public engagement with it. And so I think we should be gentle in our expectations about what the American people will actually do with the rules. There has yet to be an in-depth examination of those documents I just described. There's been a lot of discussion about the FISA minimization orders, so I don't mean that the public never talks about anything, but I have yet to read anything about the recently declassified annex of 5240.1-R, and that is a really important document. And, and we now know what the rules are, and yet we have not talked about it. So. I'm, I'm entirely in favor of what you're saying, but it's not so clear to me that the, the public is, let me just say one more sentence. There's a lot of reasons why the public is thoroughly uninterested in intelligence, and a lot of political scientists who have been writing about that for two decades. Why is it that, that the congressional committees do a different kind of oversight than, than perhaps the church committee would have approved of? Why is it that the public engages so little with intel matters? The increased transparency that I hope we get is not going to change that underlying dynamic. And I don't think we should hope, I don't think we can hope that it really will. So if I could just talk briefly about that. I mean, I think what you, you've raised some very important uh, considerations for us. I, um, I certainly from our perspective, it seems that the public is very engaged in intelligence matters to an unprecedented degree. But wait, wait, six more months. Okay. We'll um, but um, I, I, so the, the the challenge we face in the intelligence community is, of course, we 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 conduct activities 
in secret in order to uh, obtain the secrets that our adversaries are trying to keep from us. And so, um, and I've said this before, full transparency would essentially render the intelligence community ineffective. And I know you're not advocating for that, but but that just I'm just I'm saying that to illustrate that. Uh, the way that the intelligence community has been designed, built, trained, um, uh, and the culture of the intelligence community is around non-disclosure. It's around keeping secrets, getting the secrets of our adversaries and keeping secret how we get them so that we can remain effective in the defense of national security. And other, other adversaries around the world, other intelligence services, are very good at, at keeping their secrets and at pursuing their goals. So how do we provide greater transparency to the American people, which we recognize we have to do, but at the same time, keeping um, those sources and methods secret is very challenging for us. And again, it takes it takes a shift in culture. It's going to take shift in resources. It's going to it's going to take a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of change. And and we're going through that process now. Um, uh, we've had, you know, we've we've been having more and more engagements with uh, civil society. We've been. Uh, out of speaking and, and hearing other people's views a lot more. How do we institutionalize that? How do we come up with the different processes so that we make sure that that is something that just happens as an organic part of now being in the intelligence community? Um, I think those are good questions that we still have to figure out. I would add that it's it's at least my a lot of my confusion doesn't arise from uh, not understanding the rules or not knowing them. Uh, it's it's it, it extends to definitions of words like collection. So it, we could start with small baby steps, even. And, and but to me, that's helpful. part of the rules, that's right? I no, mean, exactly. Right. Because when when I don't know what collection means, I just assume the worst, right? And then it just turns into this whole sort of snowball effect. Um, got one over here, and then uh, Julian over here, and and also, I'm sorry. Okay. So. Okay. So I have a I have a big uh, stepping back to the discussion about specific compliance incidents, and I have an enormous amount of faith in. Uh, the oversight in NSA and NSD's role in and all of that. But my question is more about what happens when there's an error and the error leaves before the before NSA compliance can kick in that, or in another entity. And then, the, and then the error populates other databases. So, I mean, we've seen this and in the context um, that's the, in the Ibrahim case, for example, this Ninth Circuit case, there was a very um, strong suggestion that there was an error, or this wasn't a suggestion, it was clear that there was an error in putting something on a no-fly list. And then there was a strong suggestion by the court that that error then, even after that error was corrected, that error then populated other databases and it became incredibly hard for the government to, to extract the erroneous information from the range of databases that are, that are interconnected. So even if we have ultimate faith in a particular agency to, to maintain good control over the databases, how do we have faith that errors don't populate and, and lead to adverse affirmative consequences for particular individuals? Let's take one more question and answer both together. Uh, Julian, over here. Um, so just reading some of the um, uh, compliance assessment reports that have come out, I, I, I find myself worrying about this, the, the Stephen Glass problem, which is you can have what seems like a very robust sort of system of oversight that looks like it's catching a lot of errors and not catching any, um, you know, intentional violations. And so it sort of seems very reassuring because the system is very good at catching errors um, but sort of fails very quickly in the face of someone who is aware of the oversight system and taking, you know, intentional steps to circumvent it. So I wonder to what extent you sort of tiger team your own compliance systems to see how they hold up, not just against a mistake or a kind of witless you know, I punched my girlfriend's name in, um, but 
someone, you know, someone moderately savvy who knows how it works is intentionally, you know, trying to not get caught. So the, the first question that Jen asked was um, kind of related to a conversation we had yesterday, which, mm -hmm. which when you find a mistake um, in compliance and you've taken measures to correct the issue at NSA, um, how is there a process where uh, you can correct the problem downstream? Let's say it goes to a, another agency. Yeah, so, um, so in, again, internally at NSA, we have a whole purge process that, you know, data is collected incorrectly. We'll, we'll unwind it, rewind it from its uh, databases. We will also at times recall reports. So if reports that we've shared with other intelligence agencies or other customers have been as a result of some of the data, for example, that was collected in error or a, a query that was made, we will also recall those. So uh, we, we don't run the no-fly list, so I don't know how it's then handled in, in other agencies, but it, the, um, the corrective steps go beyond just internally to NSA. They go to recalling reports to make sure that they're no longer a valid report um, right, right. That, that can be replied to. And if I can just piggyback on that, I mean, it's a familiar intelligence problem generally because if you send out an, an, an Intel report for Intel purposes that turns out to be erroneous, the source was fabricating, for example, then you have to find a way to tell people, hey, don't rely on that Intel report. So, so there are methods already in place that Intel agencies have to tell people don't rely on that report. I'm not familiar. I don't want to comment on the specific situation that you had, but, but what methods are, are, um, are used will depend on, on, on the agencies involved and what the, data, the database allows and those kinds of things. I'm not saying it's perfect because obviously once data is up on a database and, and then somebody downloads it and, and starts using it, whether or not they respond to a recall notice or not is is uh, is one of the complexities that we have to deal with. For the second question, it sounded like uh, Julian was asking, "What about um, um, basically insider threats? Essentially, so folks that are familiar with the system of compliance and know how to maneuver around it. Uh, what precautions do you take uh, to evade that?" And I would add to that uh, actual uh, cybersecurity issues, okay. especially to the extent that certain compliance rules are encoded into the IT infrastructure. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, Julian's kind of asking, I think, about a couple of things. One is insider threat. Another is just kind of, um, you know, a, a person that, that maybe intentionally or unintentionally makes a mistake, but it, it doesn't get picked up for that. Um, so one is the insider threat problem is broader than just a privacy compliance problem. It goes to like, network security. It goes to all kinds of things. So there's a lot of additional safeguards that, that are in place there, and we've put a lot in place since... Um, the events of June 2013, as, as you would you would imagine. Um, the second thing is then, you know, it, it, to a large part, the compliance controls we have in place are optimized around, right, helping folks understand the rules, follow them. A lot of those also can pick up in intentional or or willful violations. You saw that in the IG letter. Um, the other thing we do is we have a uh, we we call it compliance vulnerability discovery, where we'll actually like insert synthetic data that shouldn't be there and see whether it gets picked up. Um, again, it's a little bit different than an intentional thing, but it's a deliberate perturbation of the system to see whether right, things have actually been caught. And you have to do that very carefully because right, you can have folks getting awfully confused about what just happened. But we, we coordinate those with the Office of General Counsel and the Inspector General very carefully. Um, it, it's, an, it's an area, obviously, post-June um, 2013, as the broader insider threat issue, we've had to do it. But um, I, I think your point's a very good one, which is you don't, you don't want to just kind of you know, be comfortable with what you have. You want to constantly stress test it. Um, and, and there are some, we do have an effort called Compliance Vulnerability Discovery to literally stress test it. Um, and, and you just have to coordinate those things very well because 
Right? You can have people reporting an incident that's not an incident, and then next thing you know, you're, you're rewinding a, a massive incident report that just went out that was actually not one at all. It was right, created to test the system. Basically. It's a fire drill, right? And so those have to be captured very carefully. Okay, and, and before Bobby pulls the fire drill uh, indicating that the <laughs> time is up, um, I would like to thank all of our panelists today. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And um, we'll move on to the next one. Thank you. Thank you.